0: If you will, keep your Bibles open to Acts 26. I want to direct your attention to the screen to begin with because I want us to think this morning about the life of a believer. Now, does your, does your life kind of like that? Does it come out and you think it's right and then it rocks and rolls and then it kind of turns around? Anybody else know what I'm talking about? Kind of a symbolic of, a, of the life of a believer these days. For that reason, I have felt compelled To begin a series of messages today entitled, one more time, Believers Who Are Mad. Now, don't get excited. You don't get to get angry. Mad believers are believers who are making a difference. We need some believers who are making a difference. And this morning, tonight, next week, until the Lord tells me to go someplace else, we're going to be talking about a number of different things that will hopefully Awaken us to the fact that we need to be making a difference. You know, much of human behavior is controlled by situations, actions, and events. In fact, if you and I are honest before God, a lot of times we do not even act or respond until something happens to our family and our friends. Hello? Give me a nod to let me know you're not nodding off, Okay. We don't even, we don't even give it anything until something happens to us. And then when something happens in and around our lives, we have two choices. We either react or we respond. Now, let me kind of clarify what I mean. Reaction is that knee jerk, anger, wrath, get even, come out swinging type of response that's given without much thought. When I think of reaction, I'm reminded of the upper room where Jesus was with his disciples. You know, first of all, the disciples were there, and all the servants had been dismissed. And so the buzz around the room was, who's going to wash the feet? I'm not going to. Peter said, I'm the number one disciple. John said, I'm the beloved. And they just went around the room. And finally, Jesus said, okay, I'll show you guys. And he got up and put the towel on. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And when he came to Peter, being Peter, he reacted and said, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. I will not allow it. Now, can you imagine telling Jesus you're not going to allow him to do something? better think about that before you respond to it. And Jesus said, you don't understand, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me. (laughs) Now, Peter does it one more time. He hasn't learned his lesson. And he says, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. And Jesus basically says, Peter, you were so busy reacting, you didn't listen to what I was telling you. That's the reaction, not listening. But then there, on the other side of reaction, you have response. Now, response is that reactive process where you cool down a little bit. May I just give you this for free? You know your car does not work well overheated. Did you know that? If you get a car overheated, you're going to stay right there. Just, for, just to help us a little bit, neither does your mind nor your tongue work well when it is overheated. Could I get an Amen. And so what happens is that in that response process, we cool down, we calm down, and we try to give a response that is for the greater good. Let me give you an illustration. In May of 1980, a 13-year-old girl named Carrie Bleichner was walking down the road in the bicycle lane headed toward her church for a spring carnival. Unannounced to her, coming directly down that road, was a man in his 40s, already had several arrests for DUIs. He was now so drunk, he was passed out. His car struck Carrie's body. He was passed out. His car struck Carrie's body, threw it 125 feet. The reports are he then came back to, didn't realize what had happened, and drove off. And there lay her lifeless body. A couple of days later, Carrie's mom, Candace, was driving by that location and, and saw the police out measuring and talked to the police. And this is what she found out. She found out he was a drunk driver, the multiple offender. They caught him, and she said, great, maybe he'll get what's to do him. And the policeman said he probably would not ever see the inside of a jail. Now, she could have reacted like most moms in this place would react to who lost a 13-year-old precious child. She could have gone to the jail and tried to claw his eyes out. But she didn't. In fact, that was in May of 1980. In October of 1980, Candace Leichner and a friend, Cindy Lamb, and Cindy had a, had a five-month-old who was made a quadriplegic by a drunk driver, those two ladies stood on the Capitol steps in Washington, D.C. and announced the formation of an organization we know today as MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Can you imagine all the lives that they saved and all the hurt that they have, uh, uh, have prevented because instead of reacting, they responded. Now, today I stand before you saying that as I look across the landscape of our country, we need some believers who are mad, ready to make a difference by responding properly. But sometimes we have to be awakened out of our slumber. We just get so comfortable, we need to be awakened out of our slumber. Last year, I showed you a video. It's a video of Lyndall Cooley. He's pastor of Grace Church in Nashville, Tennessee, reading to us about the report of Dr. Alan Cook. Alan Cook's an agnostic who did some research, years of research, on evangelical Christians. I keep this on my computer, and quite honestly, I watch it every two weeks or so just to remind me to stay awake. It's four minutes, and I think it deserves us seeing it again. Guys, if y'all will.
1: Sometimes Christians can tune out the criticism of unbelievers simply because they're non-Christians. It's a dangerous habit to develop, and very often those outside the Christian community can offer fresh criticism that the church needs to hear. Take sociologist Alan Wolfe. Now, Alan Wolfe serves as the director of the Boise Center at Boston University, and he is a self-described agnostic. Wolfe spent several years studying the beliefs of evangelical churches to see if they truly live their lives in ways consistent with what they believe. I want you to hear this, because this is what I believe. This man, this man in this article is preaching to us even though he's an agnostic and I believe what he's saying. And statistically, by George Barna and others, this is the truth. His method of finding out was deceptively simple. He went across America, visited significantly, uh, sorry, specifically evangelical churches. His observations were put forth in a disturbing article with great clarity called The Transformation of American Religion. His conclusions can be paraphrased in the following way. Dear fellow secular Americans, I know that you are concerned about the religious right and their influence in America. You are worried that they possess too much power and influence in America. And if they are successful, they will make America into some kind of neo-theocratic state in which religious beliefs stymie the advance of personal moral freedom in areas such as abortion, religious pluralism, and the normalization of homosexuality in the culture. Listen to what he says. But fear not, for on the basis of my studies I have found while evangelicals claim to believe in absolute truth and an authoritative Bible which governs all of life, they do not live like the Word of God. But somehow, strangely, the Bible says what satisfies their personal, psychological, and emotional needs. They say they worship an awesome God, but their deity is not one to be feared because He's pretty much non-judgmental. Always quick to point out your good qualities. And he will take whatever he can get in terms of your commitment to him. He is God light. Not the imposing deity who was always there to, uh, excuse me, not the imposing deity before whom Israel trembled at the foot of Mount Sinai, but the sort of deity who's always there to give you fresh supplies of upbeat therapy. And as for God's people, well, they're pretty much just like everyone else. No more holy, no more righteous than the rest of us. If you put them in the crucible of character, they'll fold like a cheap suit. In some, democracy is Democracy is safe from religious zealots because such people don't really exist in large numbers. So relax! Evangelical Christianity in America is safe as milk. Alan Wolfe.
0: I want to bring your attention to what he said in some. Go ahead, Brandon. In some, he concludes Hang on right there, America, relax. America, relax. You know, that's okay. But think about it, what he's going to say next. Then he moves to evangelical Christianity. That's us. That's people who believe in Jesus, the Bible, the Word of God, Jehovah God. One way to God is through Jesus. He's talking about us. Relax. Evangelical Christians are as safe as milk. Now, that could be. Nice to tell everybody you could come and join, but that's not what he's saying. You know what he's saying? Christianity is dead. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that frustrates me. How did he come up with these conclusions? Where does he get the right to say this? And it doesn't help anything that believers, those who say that they are evangelical Christians, go ahead, Brandon, those are are people who are afraid to be questioned. Let somebody question our beliefs, and we get on our high horse like we're Pharisees. And yet Peter tells us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Can you give an answer? You see, folks, I want to make you mad today. I want to make you upset at the conditions we live in. And then I want you to become a mad believer. That is a believer who is making a difference. You see, I believe this. I believe that by and large, we have people inside the church who, when life is over, desire to hear, well done. Do I have a group of people in here that want to hear well done one day? I was reminded this week, and I told the Wednesday night crowd, we will only hear well done if we have done well. Now, how do we do well? We live our life according to this book. That means when something comes into our life, that is contrary to this book, that we renounce it. That means we allow the book to change our lives on a daily basis, if need be. That means that when we read and study and God speaks to our hearts, that we are not too proud, that we're not too sot in our ways, that we're not too old, that we're not too anything to hear God's word and change. Next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to change. These are not going to be easy messages. Tonight, we're going to talk about love, a life of love. But today, I want to begin where I want to begin at a very logical place. It is a place where John the Baptist began his preaching. It is a place where in in the aftermath of, of Pentecost that Peter began his preaching. And it is a place where Jesus began his preaching. They all began with the same word, repent. I want to call us today to a life of repentance. Now listen, repentance is one of those things that you cannot avoid if you come to Christ. You can come to the church and you can avoid repentance. You can come to be baptized and you can avoid repentance. You can come to the preacher. You can avoid repentance. You can come and do ministry. You can avoid repentance. But you cannot be saved without repentance. Furthermore, You cannot live the life that our Lord has called you to and me to absent repentance. We have almost dismissed this concept of repentance. Because, you see, no longer do we come to the altar and pray over our sin. Because, you see, in our church today, nobody sins anymore. We've got it all together. And yet the very people that we are to influence knows better. They see us like we are. We don't see ourselves in the mirror, but they see us like we are. And when we're confronted with sin, we don't really want to get on our knees at the altar, our knees on the front pew, and ask God to do a work in our life. Could it be that the reason that we're not asking God to do something in us, it's because we're so busy asking Him to do something for us. Could it be that the reason that we've dismissed our need to repent is that we're all rich? Oh, whoa, Brother Jerry, you just got out of bounds. We're not rich. Let me startle you with some information that I discovered this week. Did you realize that if you have an annual household income of over $40,000 a year, that you're in the top 5% in the world? In income. Does that startle anybody but me? Did you realize that if your household income is over $50,000 a year, you are in the top 1% in the world? We are a rich people. Jesus told us it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Could it be because you don't need anything, so you don't repent of anything, so you don't turn from anything, so you don't denounce anything, you don't walk away from anything? What you do is that you come to church and you live your life, we live our lives just like everybody else, and they see none of Jesus in us because we're not a changing people. I want us to think about repentance this morning. Just for clarification, go ahead, Brandon. Just life of repentance. And I want to talk to you about it in two slices in the time that remains. The first slice, if you look on the back of your bulletin, I believe the outline's there, is the path of repentance. The path toward repentance. The path for repentance. Being an old country boy, I remember that if we we're ever going to get anywhere in the country, we had to know which path to take. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? In fact, with the modern-day GPSs sitting on the dash of our cars, we plug it in and we follow the path that we're told. We might need to take a cue from that and transport it to our spiritual life. Because, you see, Jesus said, if you want to come to the Father, there's only one path. You have to come through me. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one gets to God except through me. It's the words of Jesus. When I think of repentance, every time I preach on repentance, I'm reminded of 20-plus years ago when I was on staff at a church in Pensacola, Florida. I was teaching Jason the Wednesday night Bible study for the teenagers, and we got talking about repentance, and one of the big old boys there, I said, what's repentance? He said, Scott Erlocker said, I don't know what it is, but I can tell you what it's not. I said, okay, Scott, go, man. He said, if you intend on doing it again, it's not repentance. I thought the young man gave us a real word. If we truly repent, it involves three parts. You can write them down. The first part is conviction. Ooh, Conviction. Don't talk much about conviction anymore. You see, we have this mistaken belief. Now, listen, we have this mistaken belief that we're in control. We have this mistaken belief that I control my life. I control what's going on around me. I can even control when I come to Christ. I can control it all. And we miss the truth that God's still in control. He created it, He designed it, He created you, He designed you, and He's still in control. And what happens for repentance? And the other thing is, is that because he's in control, is that you can't decide when you come to know him. You don't decide when you get rid of your sin. Oh, yeah, he gives you a choice, but you know what? It begins someplace else. It begins inside. You can turn to Acts chapter two for sake of time. We won't turn there. The Holy Spirit fell. Peter preached, and when he when he got finished preaching, this here this was his words. He said, "Therefore." Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. The next verse said, and when they heard this, they were cut, they were pricked in their heart. They were lanced in their heart. You see what happened? Is that the word of God partnered with the spirit of God to make a sharp knife and cut the hardness of their heart. You see, that's what's got to happen before there's repentance. The Holy Spirit of God comes and cuts our hearts, lances our hearts, even to the point that it'll bleed, certainly to the point that we feel it, because He wants us to know that there is something wrong. And at that point, we're faced with a choice. Here comes the choice, guys. Are you listening? When the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life, they says that attitude, those words you said, how you treated that employee, how you treated that server, uh, your attitude at the gas pumps and on and on, whatever it is for you, those vile words you spoke, when the Holy Spirit of God comes and lances your heart and tells you that it's a sin, you know that he's speaking to you, you have two choices: you can react, you can come out swinging, not me. Did you know there's a biblical reference to how people react? In Acts chapter 6, they ordained the first who we believe were the forerunners of the deacons. Stephen headed the list. In Acts chapter 7, deacon Stephen had already gotten in trouble. He was on trial for his life. Did he back away from the gospel? No, he preached the message of The gospel. And then when he was through, the Holy Spirit of God worked in their hearts. And it says, when they heard these things, they being the people who had him under, uh, the mob who had him under arrest and arraignment, when they heard these things, they were enraged in their heart. They gnashed their teeth at him. They screamed at the top of their voices, stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear it. And they rushed together at him and they took him out of the city and they stoned him. You see, that's how we respond. That's how we react many times when the Holy Spirit of God begins lancing on our hearts. It hurts us so bad that we really don't want to deal with it. And the best defense is an offense. And so here's what we do we take issue with it. And no change is made. The second way we can counter when the Holy Spirit of God begins to convict us, is we can respond to it. We just read about Peter's testimony in Acts chapter 26, but that actually happened in Acts chapter 9. Excuse me, not Peter, Paul's. We just read Paul's testimony. In Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus was headed to Damascus for the purpose of persecuting the church and the Spirit of God swept him off his heart and lanced his heart. Look at his response. Who are you, Lord? And he got up from there and he changed the world because the Lord changed him. You know what? I dare say in this room, can I have your attention? I dare say in this room, the Holy Spirit of God's already begun nudging some folks. And He's nudging you about something that happened yesterday, last week, last year, 10 years ago, because that sin is going to stay ever before Him until it's repented of. And He's begun to tell you, you know this, you know what's going on in your heart. He's talking to you. And the Spirit of God is is lancing your heart. Now, what will you do? Will you respond to it or will you react to it? Will you come out swinging? You know what I've discovered as a preacher? You let a preacher stomp on my sin and I'll come out swinging at the preacher. That's okay. But here's what I will tell you. As long as you let it stay right there, when you try to react to it, you try to swing at it, when you try to avoid it, it'll stay right with you and your heart will get hard to where one day you'll not even hear the voice of God. Conviction begins the process. The second step is confession. Confession. You see... Confession is simply agreeing with God. The Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and He lances your heart. and He speaks to you about sin and you take issue with it. You fight Him or you say, you're right, God. You're right. The way I feel, the things I've said, what I've done, where I've gone, the people I've hung around with and allowed to influence me, all of this is sin and I know it. But you know what James tells us in the Bible? <laughs> it's about to getting dicey. James in the Bible says, Confess your faults to one another. That kind of flies in the face of coming to a building like this with a congregation like this, and we want everybody to think we got it all together. Do you know that's what's killing the church today and that's what's killing the world today? You may not tell me your faults. That's fine. But listen, you still have them. You're still struggling, just like I'm struggling. If you're going to confess faults to someone, let me just give you a little warning. Hello? Make sure, make sure you trust that person. Make sure that person has your total, complete, best interest at heart, and there is no way that they would go and hurt you. Personally, I have two men like that in my life. You've heard me tell this before. Actually, one of them just moved from uh, um, the eastern shore in Mobile to South Carolina. The other one lives in Kentucky. I can call those guys. Now, please listen, because I don't want you to miss this. This is important. I can call those guys, and I can tell them what I'm going through. I can tell them what I'm struggling with. I can even tell them what my sins are. And you know what? They will not turn me loose. They will not turn me over. They will not uh, berate me, but neither will they let me off the hook. Hello? You see, we have this false sense of what love is today. We'll talk about it tonight as we talk about a life of love. We have this false sense of what love is. Today we think that love means that I support whether they're right or wrong. I just kind of pat them on the back and everything's okay. These two men love me too much to let me continue to mess up. So they will tell me the truth to get me back on point. Do you have somebody in your life that you can confess to? And they can get you back on point. My wife's in the nursery today. Thanks for your prayers for her. She's doing better. My wife is someone that I can share that with. Maybe not like someone of the same gender. Because I know that my wife will never be destructive to me. And she knows that I'll never be destructive to her. No matter how we tease and pick and all this. There's not a destructive bone in our bodies toward each other. But you see, if you're going to confess to one another, you better make sure that you know that person. Don't tell somebody that you know is a gossip. Hello? How many times have you told something to somebody you thought they're going to hang on to it, but you know they're a gossip before you told them? You know, it's kind of like the three men out in the boat. They're fishing, then. They're fishing. And one down here says, guys, we're all three Christians and, and members of the same church. And said, man, I got some. I'm having a struggle, and somebody said, what is it? He said, you know what? I struggle with pornography on the Internet. Said, I you know, I put a filter on there, but I know the password and just on it, and you know, I just, I need some help. Don't need people told. I just need some help. Will y'all hold me accountable? Yeah, we'll hold you accountable. The guy in the middle of the boat is throwing. He goes, hey, guys. He said, yeah, me. He said, my struggle is money. I want to get money no matter how, what it, I, I, you know, I, I just, everything I do is wrapped around money. I, I just, can y'all help me? It's just money, this love of money is the root of everything that I do wrong. So the guy on the other end of the boat never opens his mouth. He just keeps fishing. And finally, the other two guys, about 20 minutes later, said, we confess confessed our sin to you. Are you going to confess your sin to us? He said, yeah. He said, you know what? I struggle with gossip and I can't wait to get home. <laughs> Be careful about who you tell your deepest, darkest secrets to. That's one of the things our small groups are going to develop into. Places that are places that are safe that we can bear life's hurts. But listen, never forget to confess it to God. When God begins to deal with you, agree with him. Yeah, Lord, you're right. I'm going to make you a suggestion. I'm going to make you a suggestion to to get on your knees in private by yourself. Sit down if you can't physically get on your knees. That is a statement that's just symbolic of our hum- the humility we approach God with. Get before God, get alone, and talk to him out loud. And talk to him out loud. Maybe even write it down because there's something... There's something that happens when you let it out of your body. Yes, this is a sin. Yes, the way I treated that server. Oh, gosh. I opened my mouth and was mean to her. It probably was not really her fault. And even if it was, she didn't deserve what I gave her. How I treated that person who I met in the mall the other day. Things I've said, when God speaks a word of conviction into your life, it's time to confess it. But I want to say this to you. There is one more element of repentance, and you think we're done. Conviction and confession, those are just the first steps. I believe this third step is where the water meets the wheel, and that is compliance. Compliance. I'll confess to you this morning that over my lifetime, I've really gotten tired of being convicted about something. Confessing it and doing it again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And doing it again. You see, the truth is, if we don't comply with God's word, we've not gained any ground. This world is disintegrating. The church in America seems to be disintegrating. And I think it hangs right here. In this thing of repentance, the reason we're not impacting the world is because they see through us, as, as Alan Wolfe said, they see that we are not people of conviction. We're not people of the truth. We are not people who allow our lives to be changed. We are basically church members who live just like everybody else lives. will not comply with the Word of God. I have a question for you. When God speaks to you a word in your life about your sin? What do you do? What do you do? How do you deal with it? Do you just try to dismiss it? Or do you try to confess it and turn from it and allow Him to have rule and reign in your life? We could stop right here. But I want to talk to you about the progression of repentance the progression of repentance now all I'm going to do basically is list these for you and make a comment about them but let it burn deeply into your heart what happens to us when we repent what happens to us when we are convicted and we confess and then we comply what happens in us can I tell you the first one is renewal renewal we become renewed. Can you remember when you met Jesus? Can you remember how you felt inside? Can you remember how, man, you were like the Easter bunny. The energizer bunny. You were running all over the place. Because here's the truth, you had been released. You had been renewed. You had been freed. Now, as a believer from, for however long, and sin has crept into your life, and sin has held you hostage, you'll be like David. And yet King David said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. A right spirit. He said, Lord, I have lost your spirit inside of me, and I need it back. I need the freedom. And may I just say this to you? When you are steeped in sin, your mind does not work right. King David was a man after God's own heart. And after he had the affair with Bathsheba, was into sin. In the next little bit, he broke five to seven of the Ten Commandments in rapid succession. Because he wasn't thinking right. If you're steeped in sin today, you listen to your preacher. You are not thinking right. Your mind does not work right. Let this mind be in you that's also in Christ Jesus. The mind in Christ Jesus is not one steeped in sin. But listen, when we come to Christ in renewal, when we come to Christ in repentance, we are renewed. Now, a couple other things may happen very quickly. second thing that may happen is we may need to make some restitution. and We may need, need to fix something. We may have hurt somebody badly that like in legal terms, that we need to take care of the damages. You see, we as believers think, well, I've dealt with it, so it's either way. Well, it might be. Generally, if you need to make restitution, here's what will happen. When you come to grips with it, with the Father, the Father will guide you in that. The Father will... He doesn't just talk to preachers. He talks to everybody. It's called the priesthood of believers. You go to your closet in prayer, and he convicts you, and you, and you confess. And you, when you start to comply, he says, Okay, now you need to go and you need to do this. But it may not stop it. Restitution. Whew, the third part, Reconciliation. Now I'm just going to tell you right now, everything that's happened in your life cannot be reconciled. Everything cannot be reconciled. I heard a preacher talking about being sexually abused. You probably will never reconcile that with a person. Now you have to, It's a forgiveness issue. But did you realize that reconciliation is what we're all about? Let's see if we can run across it fairly quickly and get us concept. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, all things passed away, behold, all things are new. And then he says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Did you hear that? What does that word reconcile mean? Well, we reconcile our bank statement. When we bring peace to an issue, we have reconciled the issue. When we bring, when we bring a, a healing to a relationship, we have reconciled. God was in Christ reconciling the world. Because God wants a relationship with people. Now watch this. And the reason we have to be about reconciliation it's because the next verse says, and now we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That means it's on our shoulders. Now I have a question for you. I have a question for you. Are you a part of the reconciling bunch or the wrecking crew? Is there a sin in your life that you need to repent of? God's talking to you about it right now. That's not me. That's him. And if he's convicted you of it, are you ready to confess it? You do know, to confess it to me. I'm talking about confess it to him. And then are you ready to comply with what he's called you to, to do? If you are, you'll experience renewal. may require some restitution and some reconciliation. Within your heart will be on fire for God. And here's what happens: is that when our hearts get right before God, we become believers who are mad, making a difference. Dear God, let it be. Think around this town, think around our community, and consider how badly we need a touch from the Father. And it begins with you.
1: Let's pray together.